we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the Center. And our guest this week is Todd Rokita, who is the 44th Attorney General of the state of Indiana. Now, you might be asking, why Indiana? It's not a southern border state. It's not even a northern border state. And while everywhere in the country has its share of immigrants, legal and illegal, it's not one of the top immigration states either. Nonetheless, Attorney General Rokita has taken something of a leadership role in challenging the Biden administration's immigration policies or lack of immigration policies. So, Attorney General Rakita, I really appreciate your time. And if you could just tell us, first of all, why you've taken this up of all the issues that you could. Thanks for having me, and I appreciate the work of your organization. It's very important because the foundational part of our American exceptionalism, American exceptionalism with a capital A and a capital E, it's a, it's a thing, it's a real thing, Right, is the rule of law. And we're nothing if we're not going to follow the law, if it doesn't apply to each of us equally, and if we're not all under it. I get a little philosophical about this in the sense that, you know, I'm very appreciative and recognize that we're the first really society that put all the best rules for self-governance in publishing a document or a couple of documents. And we're supposed to live with it. And we flipped everything on its head. I mean, before we were subjects to other humans who acted as our overseers. And no, we flipped that on its head and said, you know what? We, the people, are in charge. And government's going to be subject to us. And the only thing over us is the rule of law applied equally to all of us. And maybe over that, God. So there's that. There is the rule of law that's supposed to be applied to each of us equally. and that being thumbed in our faces mm-hmm. by this administration. You know, we had 500 some miles of that wall built under the last presidential administration. A guy that I had a lot of respect for, President Trump. He was trying and was doing something, and I, I was pleased to work with him when I was in Congress. And now, all that work's being undone, and the rule of law is being laughed at. And so, I went down to Texas twice, Arizona once, I needed to see it for myself to understand it because it's not what you're seeing on TV. TV shows you pictures of families who are giving themselves up. Right. A problem in its own right. They are breaking the law too. And there's a question whether or not they really are coming to imbibe and share in American values and assimilate or if they're coming here to take. But what you're not seeing on TV, where you're not seeing on the news, are the single males, the ones who are hiding in train cars that I saw, the ones who are getting into this country through an Indian reservation in Arizona that we can't even get on as Border Patrol, 
and who are coming here to destroy, who are coming here to commit crime, bring fentanyl, bring sex trafficking, and bring their criminal way of life here. Not at all coming for the ideal manifested by the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. So I witnessed all that, and at that point concluded that we are all border states. As long as the federal government and the Biden administration are not doing its job, we're all border states, including Indiana. So then we needed standing. We needed to show damages to the state. And we were able to do that. And so we filed suit, hopefully as an example to other non-border states. Like you mentioned, we were part of other lawsuits brought by border states. This is our own suit brought against the federal government in federal court. Now, those earlier suits you'd sued based on the so-called Central American Miners Program, and I believe the Remain in Mexico Program and the public charge rule. What is the what specifically is the recent, the June lawsuit targeting? What's the nature of the exact complaint? Right. It was June 6th of this year. D-Day. Yeah, we <laughs> filed a complaint. The state of Indiana filed a complaint for declaratory and injunctive relief against the Biden administration itself to combat the blatant attack on our southern border regarding parole policy. I see. Okay. And in that suit, we said, look, Indiana has 124,000 illegal immigrants that we know about, right? which is a small portion of the actual total. I liken it to an, an iceberg analogy. You only see the very tip of it. Mm-hmm. Then we were able to determine that since Joe Biden took office with an administration that does not enforce the border, we had something like 1,200 illegal immigrants we knew about ones that came over and were allowed into this country due to a lack of enforcement. And again, using the iceberg analogy, that's only the tip of it. There's, there, there's certainly many, many more of that, but there were 1,200 we were able to show. I see. On government records where they were, where they were caught and then released hmm. and ended up in Indiana. So that right. doesn't include all the ones that weren't caught and ended up in Indiana. But we were able to show 1,200. And then we have facts in there like the fact that under state and federal law, we have to educate these children. Right. So we found 1,300 illegal immigrant students. Now, they're from the Biden administration and prior, but we have to spend roughly $12,000 per child to educate illegal immigrant children. Point being, these are examples of more detailed facts of, and figures regarding our damages as a state. And as a result, we think we have a pretty good lawsuit that will be able to survive because we're able to show actual damages. And as you suggested, the actual damages, the dollar costs and other costs, are what gets you into court, or you hope that's what gets you into right. court. In other words, for standing purposes, because earlier, really before the Trump administration, I don't recall state attorneys general suing administrations over, certainly not over immigration policy. So it seems to be a something, a precedent that the Democratic states trying to stop President Trump kind of started, and now, you know, they're kind of reaping the whirlwind, as it were. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's the tool that I have in my toolbox. Right. We and other like-minded attorneys general, we in this state are going to use the tools that I have available to me that the voters of this state have given me. 
there's other things that other people inside and outside the state can do, however. Right. For example, and just for example, if I was governor, I'd have our guard down in Texas and Arizona helping those governors. Interesting. It would be the first thing I did in office, especially with the surpluses that all these states have these days. Funny money, so be it, but it still could be used to uh, give our guardsmen and women good experience and really help out. My hat goes off to fellows like Greg Abbott, who are taking this pretty seriously and in a way defending our entire country. But had we had a federal administration, too, of course, and first and foremost, that believed in the rule of law. That's why I, ha- I harped on that at the beginning. Right. We had respect for the rule of law. We had respect for all of us. We had respect for those illegal immigrants themselves who are going through a very treacherous journey. It's not even humane what these illegal immigrants are doing, especially the children who are being raped, sex trafficked. And Joe Biden turns his head on all that. It's disgusting, really. Right. It's inhumane. It's immoral. It's wrong. And if you're in a position of leadership in this country and you're not doing what you can, using those tools that I spoke of, the tools that you have at your disposal to stop this, then you're part of the problem. First and foremost, that's Joe Biden and whoever his puppet masters are. And after that, it comes down to our state governors and then attorneys general. And you mentioned it. We are, there's a bunch of us using, seeing that we're the, the last line of defense here, using the tools we have to do what we can. Not to get you in trouble with your own governor, but have people requested the Indiana National Guard to be sent to border states? You'll have to ask him that question. <laughs> okay. Last time I asked, I heard there was a helicopter of ours in Arizona. Okay. Have other states joined on to this June lawsuit, or is it something that really is so Indiana-specific that it's not something you're looking for other states to sign on to? Yeah, I don't know if it is this one's like that. Um, no, to answer your question. But again, our point is that this is something Indiana's doing on its own. Now, other states, the way the suit structure should do their own version of it on its own, if the facts allow. Right. Now, Indiana's been pretty good on immigration issues generally. I mean, for instance, I just took a look at our map of sanctuary cities and sanctuary jurisdictions, and there don't seem to be any in Indiana. Now, I may be wrong on that, but that's an encouraging sign. Do you have any involvement, or is that a different department with 287G program? Are you familiar with that, where local law enforcement cooperates with federal immigration authorities, something this administration doesn't want to do? Are there Indiana jurisdictions that do that, that you know off the top of your head? Yeah, just so I understand your question. We do have some sanctuary cities. Oh, you do? Okay. In the state of Indiana, well, Gary comes to mind. And even though we have a state law that prohibits it, we're in court over that right now, separate lawsuits, that kind of thing. And we're, we're losing. Interesting. The state statute is losing. Yeah. Wow. It's bad. That's amazing. So... Is it sort of a ambiguity in the law, or is it basically just political judging? Yeah, that's a fair question. I, I don't know that I can or should be making okay, that well, comment. Okay, well, that's true. Probably not. Live lawsuits going on, but right. you know, it's a pretty straightforward legal concept. I don't know that there's any miswording in our law that's been argued about. And so it's just more of an issue of home rule. You know, separate elected officials uh, can that they want, but, you know, again, state law, state law, so, you know, we're having all that out, and certainly there's politics involved. 
So what's the next step in this lawsuit that you all filed in June? In other words, what's the next thing, the next shoe that's going to drop? Well, getting in the weeds here a little bit, we, in reaction, I'd like to think in reaction to our lawsuit, the federal government came out and changed their policy. Hmm. Not to worry, this lawsuit's going to be moved here a little bit because we changed our policy. Right. Lo and behold, we've read the new policy and it uses different words. That's true. <laughs> it says the same thing. Right. But just to be sure, we'll file an amended complaint off that. Okay. And often, quote unquote, new policy. But otherwise, the federal government's due to have their answer this month. Okay, interesting. And we'll see what they answer, and then we'll go from there. Maybe they'll move to dismiss it. And that's where the proof will be in the pudding if we have enough standing to stay. So The frustrating thing about these, though, is that when, for instance, you've sort of taken the leadership on this, filed a lawsuit, it's the kind of thing that could drag on to the end of this administration and they just keep getting away with it every day of letting in people. I mean, the New York Times just today reported something we reported two and a half months ago. They just caught up to us that this administration has released more than one million illegal border jumpers into the United States. None of those people is going to leave and every day there's more. I mean, I'm not complaining about the lawsuits. You got to do what you got to do, but it is frustrating that these problems just keep getting worse. They create facts on the ground. And even if you win, you know, we sort of lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the wheels of justice I hear you for sure. And by the way, you guys are doing a great job. I mean, thanks for sticking with us. Thank you. And not letting us forget what is an inconvenient truth. Right. To use the own term. And you talk about the million people. I mean, it's worse than that. I mean, again, let's go back to what, I'm, what I said a little bit earlier. They're not necessarily coming to a simulate. Now, I don't mean to be absolutist. Surely some are. But this is a not, again, the type of illegal immigrant that came under the Statue of Liberty or even came across the southern border before. And even the things you're seeing on your TV, whether it's Fox News or something different, you know, what you're seeing on TV are people that want to be caught. Right. They're coming with little kids. They're turning themselves in. They're, we still don't know their intentions here. But then there's all these people that are not on TV, that you're not seeing on TV, that we're catching. Right? Those are part of the million that are caught and released. And they're single males who were more likely than not criminals in their home country and now are coming for greener pastures. So they're bringing fentanyl. These cartels are sending them. The cartels are paying drivers in the U.S. to to get them into states like Indiana with the fentanyl, right? With sex trafficking to commit higher crimes. And we're seeing this when I talk to county sheriffs and police chiefs now in Indiana. Crime going up, and what's the source? Well, we don't know when they crossed the border if it was by the administration or not, but they were illegal immigrants for sure. These are what they call the gotaways. I assume you saw some of that at the border where. These are, like you said, not the people who turn themselves in, which is a problem in itself. These are the people who don't want to be caught, aren't right. turning themselves in. I think they're still part of that million you talk about, right? No, no. That million is just the people who turned themselves in and were released. So the gotaways right. are hundreds of thousands of people on top right. of that. Right. And they could be part of that. You know, they could also be part of that million. But the point is, is that million is a very small percentage of the total. Sure. Yep. So the million we know about, as alarming as that is, is, again, the, what we see of the iceberg. 
Exactly. Two other things I just wanted to touch on briefly. You've also, and this is not an immigration thing, but this is something you've been pretty active in other kinds of lawsuits too. You've sued BLM for financial issues, sued Google, I think, over user privacy issues. So how do you see the role of a state attorney general in addressing these kind of broader national issues? In other words, it seems to me if Congress doesn't want to do its job just generally and the administration is you know, committed to sort of a different view of uh, what the Constitution is supposed to be, do state attorneys general have sort of a unique role, not even just in immigration, but more generally in trying to defend the rule of law? That's a great question. I think the role is evolving. I didn't know when, when entering this office that we'd be dealing with the breadth and depth of the issues that we are. I think it's, in a way, it's, it's very exciting. I used to be a congressman, and now we have those same issues that we fought for and fought for and against in Congress now happening here again in a lot of respects. Except this time, I don't vote yes or no and have a nice day after that. I actually can file a lawsuit, investigative demand that we could do a lot of different things. So it's a very effective office for moving the needle on these social and economic issues, which I don't think are distinct anymore. If your kids are being taught CRT in school and how to be political activists, that means they're not learning math, science, and reading. Right, right. They're less employable in a 21st century workforce, and that is very much an economic issue. So you see the attorney general at the forefront here more and more. And then for me, the question becomes, is this some kind of high tide where it ebbs and flows, mm-hmm. or is it the new norm? And, you know, while that verdict's still out, I suspect it's just going to be a bit of the new norm, and rightfully so. The states assert themselves, number one, and assert themselves through their attorney general if they have a good one. You were in Congress for four terms, so you were there, it's not, you know, a huge amount of time, but you were there long enough to sort of get a feel for what it's like. Yes, but not long enough to be part of the problem, sir. Yeah, okay, that's fine. That's fair. That's fair. Which job do you prefer? Because I think there's two different kind of personalities. Some are executive personalities, some are legislative. And you've had both kinds of jobs. Do you find that attorney general is something that sort of suits you more, that you prefer? I don't speak for others, but you're right to say that it's an executive job, and I know I belong here. This is a very important job. It's an honor to have it. And somebody was, I heard early on, I keep hearing it every once in a while, that AG stands for almost governor. <laughs> and I don't know what they what they mean by that, but you know, at this point, when people ask, "Hey, you gonna run for Senate? You gonna run for governor? You gonna run for this or that?" The other thing I said, "Why do those other things when I could be and do the job of Attorney General?" It's not a stepping stone position as much as it is a destination position for people who want to actually get things done. Interesting. Any other immigration related activity you all have? planned? Anything else on the horizon, or are you going to be trying to deal with this lawsuit first? You know, what I'm doing now is, for example, next week or so, we're going to meet with all the sheriffs okay. in the state. So we have 92 counties, we have 92 different sheriffs and their, and their deputies, of course. And we're going to start looking at what we can do to protect the border from Indiana, and how, more importantly, how we can protect our communities from what's happening at the border. Right. These are all elected officials, and they're all leaders in their own right, and they have a lot to offer. And so I'm going to try to be helpful to them as I'm, as the attorneys general across the nation are trying to help each other, at least some of us, 
and we're going to defend this country because it's worth defending. And Joe Biden, the federal government, or not. So we want to. We're going to look for ways to see if we can help these border patrol folks who are doing a great job, who are doing an impossible job. Right. How we can help the Texas Rangers and Governor Abbott and others, even if it's by protecting our own communities. So that's what we're up to now. Excellent. So I uh, wish you luck. We're going to keep an eye on your activities. And if there's new developments in this area, we'll definitely be sure to reach out and keep in touch with you. Our guest has been Todd Rakita, who's the Attorney General of Indiana and has taken a leadership role in challenging the federal government in court on immigration issues. From a state, unlike, say, Texas or Arizona, where you would expect that sort of thing, but from a state that's not on the border, Nonetheless, as you said, every state is a border state. Every town is a border town now. So, frankly, more attorneys general should be following this path and doing the same kind of thing. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Great to be on. Talk to you soon. And thank you for your work. I've been through your website. I'm sure you're familiar with the work that you do. And I've seen you on news coverage. And it's very, very important what you're doing. So thank you for it. Great. Thanks a lot. And finally, I wanted to address something that we had a blog post on. Nayla Rush, one of our researchers, had a blog post last week called Refugee Resettlement Program is Losing Its Reason for Being. And the point she wanted to make was that the people admitted as refugees through the regular refugee resettlement program established by the 1980 Refugee Act are actually not that many. Last year was the lowest year, the previous fiscal year, only 11,000 and change refugees were resettled. This year, it'll be something like 20-something thousand. We don't know exactly what, but it'll be 20,000, maybe 25, something like that. But what's happening is that the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is in charge of this sort of thing, it's part of the Department of Health and Human Services is actually acquiring more and more responsibilities that have nothing to do with the Refugee Resettlement Program. And Congress is granting refugee benefits, welfare and what have you, to more and more populations that have nothing to do with refugees. The Office of Refugee Resettlement, ORR, is the shorthand for it, is in charge of the so-called unaccompanied minors, you know, who come across the border They're usually smuggled by their own parents or relatives who already live illegally in the United States, but the legal fiction is that they're unaccompanied, and so they have these special rights and prerogatives, but ORR has to deal with them. There's the Central American Miners Program, CAM, which is supposed to be an opportunity not to sneak through Mexico and come across the border, but directly come to the United States for miners who have relatives here with legal status. Really, it's just an extra program to bring in people. And then the big numbers are Ukrainians and Afghans. We've taken, what, something like 80,000 Afghans. This year, we're going to have 100,000 Ukrainians. They've been extended refugee benefits by Congress, but they're not part of the refugee program. And so what we have is essentially the point of the refugee program, as set up by the 1980 Refugee Act, was to create a kind of regular system, a process where 
people who were identified as genuine refugees were also identified as being in need of resettlement would operate through that system. But apparently the strictures on that, making sure that people are real refugees and really in need of resettlement, were too limiting for advocacy groups and people in government who want to expand immigration by any means necessary. And so they're essentially leaving the formal refugee resettlement system behind. It hasn't been eliminated altogether, but it's kind of an afterthought at this point because this administration, with Congress's cooperation, is just bringing in all kinds of quasi-refugee populations that wouldn't qualify for refugee resettlement, either because they're not refugees themselves or they're not in need of resettlement, and just bringing them in and treating them as though they're refugees and, in many cases, dumping their management administration on the what is still referred to as the Office of Refugee Resettlement, even if that's becoming increasingly a misnomer. So this is just another example of how the attempts to give structure to immigration, to try to limit numbers and limit characteristics to certain you know, benchmarks so that the people we let in would meet various XYZ characteristics, are always end up being overwhelmed for political reasons. And they kind of overflow their banks, if you will. And so what you have is you see that with TPS, which was supposed to prevent executive freelancing and just letting people in who had no, no right to be here. And it still exists. It's renewed constantly whenever it's granted. But then the executive just gives other statuses, deferred enforced departure, DED, or just lets in people as we're seeing at the southern border and grants them humanitarian parole, even though that in the law is supposed to be a very narrow status, they're using it on a mass basis. And so, I mean, I guess the punchline is that Congress needs to remove discretion from the executive branch, that presidents and their administrations of any party simply cannot be trusted to have discretion in immigration areas, whether it's in parole or anything else. Congress needs to step in and say the executive branch can do this much and literally no more under any circumstances, no waivers, no discretion, no nothing. Because this administration has shown, has basically taken to the logical conclusion the fact that executives, that the president and his administration, not just Biden, but generally speaking, literally cannot be trusted with limiting immigration and, and operating within the bounds that Congress creates if Congress gives them any wiggle room. The wiggle room has to go away. Otherwise, you're going to end up with this kind of thing over and over again. That's it for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. If you like what you've heard, I hope you subscribe, but feel free to let me know at Twitter, probably the best place. Mark S., as in Stephen, Mark S. Krikorian is my Twitter handle. And I uh, encourage you to subscribe there too. Follow me if you like snark and sarcasm. And hope you tune in next week.